Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Hey, TCC, uh, open up your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We are continuing our sermon series on this letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy about the church in Ephesus. This is one of the pastoral letters. Paul is giving advice and instruction to Timothy about how to deal with some issues that are arising in the church in Ephesus. And so for us, this is a model that we can look to that provides structure and orderliness and fosters unity as a church and guides us to health and vibrancy in our church life. You know, we recently had our triennial health inspection, which means that a few leaders in our classes, which is a network of churches from our denomination in our region, uh, they came out to visit with us to get a sort of outside perspective on how things are going here at TCC. And they meet with our pastoral staff, and they meet with our leaders, our consistory, and they ask questions, and there's conversations and surveys. And we do those kinds of things because we take the health of the church and of our church seriously. It's vital. The health of the church is vital for effective ministry. It's vital for the advancement of the kingdom of God, and it's vital to sustain you and I in our walk with Christ. Christianity is not just a personal faith journey. It's to be lived out in community as the body of Christ. Today in our service, uh, we had uh, people, a lot of people, becoming members of our church. And that's encouraging, isn't it? To see all these people joining into this body, members of the body that God has equipped, that God has gifted in order to serve this church and to bless me and you and for us to bless them. That is encouraging. But I think we can reduce this to a a theoretical good where, you know, conceptually, it's a good idea for the church to grow in numbers, but practically, what difference does it really make in my life? You know, I think you're probably a bit like me where I got my family, I got my friends, I got my inner circle, I got people I can turn to if I were in trouble or in need, I got my network, so I don't really need anyone else. So what difference does it make? You know, it can be real easy to fall into that mentality if, we, if we've reduced church to nothing but a social club. It's far harder to slip into that mentality if you're thinking of the church as missional, if you're thinking in terms of advancing the gospel, if you're thinking in terms of spiritual war. Oh, you can be indifferent about the number of friends in your social circle, but it's a lot harder to be indifferent about the number of reinforcements on your side in the trenches. Sundays like this uh, should really fill us with love and gratitude for one another and ultimately and supremely with gratitude for God who equips his church for ministry. And ministry in so many ways, as we will see in our text today, ministry is practical. And it makes a difference in our community. It makes a difference in our church. It makes a difference in our own lives. When more and more hands are serving, when more and more joyful hearts are giving, when more and more voices are uplifted in praise to God, when more and more prayers are spoken over us, when the members of the body work together in unity with Christ as the head, it leads to transformation within and without. So with that in mind, let's turn to our passage today. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 through 16. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. 
The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for her pleasures is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house, and not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. So, as a church, we have meetings. We have staff meetings. We talk about the weekly ministries. We recap Sunday services, what worked, what didn't. We talk about ways that we can improve. We talk communication, what needs to be communicated and when. We have uh, teaching team meetings. We talk about sermon schedules and upcoming series. We have governance meetings and consistory meetings and congregational meetings and meetings within each ministry department. They get their own meetings. And we pray during those meetings, and we have devotionals. But I doubt, and maybe it's just me, but I doubt that many people have ever walked out of those meetings going, man, I've never felt closer to God. I just kind of doubt that there's a lot of mountain-high experiences in a full consistory meeting. I could be wrong. Maybe there's a lot of people who feel really close to God during those meetings, just you know, fervently in prayer, going, Lord... Get me out of this. Maybe. Uh, but those meetings just don't feel very spiritual. It's functional. It's organizational. It's structural. But it doesn't feel spiritual. And so the temptation can be, well, then we must not be doing things right. Maybe we're planning too much. Maybe we're micromanaging. Maybe we're dictating to God. Now, God can and does reject our plans or alter or change them as he sees fit, and we do need to be receptive and open to the leading of the Spirit. But I think that we tend to have a bias that says that the spontaneous is more spiritual, right? Random acts of kindness, because somehow in our minds, that's more from God than planned acts of kindness, What's so comforting about the pastoral letters is that they're dealing with pastoral issues. It actually gets into the nitty-gritty of church life, organization, and structure, and function of church. And we can see ourselves in it. See, this church in Ephesus had a ministry program. They probably didn't call it that, but that's essentially what it is. Well, we have ministry programs, they're like us. They have ministry programs. They have a ministry for widows. 
And Paul is helping them work out the function and structure of that ministry. And this passage of scripture, it probably doesn't seem deeply theological or richly spiritual as much as it is practical. He says, put these widows on the list and not these widows. There's a list. It's organized. It's not spontaneous. It's not random. They've deliberated. They've thought it through. Should this person go on the list? Should that person go on the list? They probably got together and had a meeting. Now, so much of the Christian life, even in ministry, is very ordinary. I think we can lose sight of that in part because of our reading of the Bible. The Bible is filled with big moments and excitement and danger and adventure, but in many ways, it's also a highlight reel. And in between the lines, there's literally hundreds of years of human history that go by without so much as a mention. Generations of people who are faithful in the time they were given in just ordinary ways. You know, Paul, in this letter, he exhorts them to live quiet lives. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. In reading through the Bible last year, I was really struck by the line, live quiet lives. That's a line, that's a sentiment that is expressed multiple times through the Bible. Uh, Listen to these words from 1 Thessalonians. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other, And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. What a statement. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That is not a common exhortation for churches. We don't want to be quiet. We want to make some noise. We want to start a revolution. We want to matter. But understand, this is not Paul being small-minded or timid. No, this is a bold statement. Love each other more. Live in peace. Live quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That is no small thing. Godliness and holiness and faithfulness is the goal of our lives and of the church. And the success or reach or range or impact of our ministries doesn't actually measure that. You know, one of the most successful ministries of all time was from Jonah. God sends Jonah to Nineveh to elicit repentance from them. And eventually he does go and it does bring about tremendous repentance. Then it says this, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? The success of that ministry says a lot about God. It says nothing about Jonah. We can have successful ministries. 
We can make a lot of noise as a church, but if it's without love, it's nothing but a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. We want our ministries to work and to be successful. Paul wants their ministries in Ephesus to work and to be successful. And he gives good practical advice of how to fix it, how to make it work better. But it's not a measurement of holiness. And holiness needs to be the ambition of our lives. To be like Jesus because we love Jesus. The measure of our lives and of our church is holiness in big and small ways. It's righteousness in loud and quiet ways. It's godliness in spontaneous and planned ways. And it's faithfulness and obedience in our stewardship and in our ministries. So what I want us to see is that the passage today, it's dealing with the nitty-gritty of ministry. It's dealing with, it's problem-solving. It's practical and pragmatic and so very ordinary. But at its core, it is a call to live righteously. To honor God in everything that we do. So this ministry in Ephesus is an attempt to do that. To look after and care for the widows. That is a great ministry. God throughout the entirety of the Bible commands people to look after the widow and the orphan. To care for the downtrodden and the marginalized. It says in James, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Theologically, this is sound, and it is a well-intentioned ministry, but it's not working right because of human fallenness and unrighteousness. And so the prescriptives that Paul offers to mitigate against that is to foster righteousness, which is the goal of the church. So there's several things going wrong here. Let's just start with this one, verse 5 and 6. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. So that's one problem. The church is not discerning between widows. Some widows are financially destitute, but not all widows. Some widows are financially okay. They're fine. They had a big dowry or something. They're fine. But because they're technically widows, they're still taking advantage of the program and using it on their pleasures. They're robbing the church. That's wicked. That's not right. That's wrong. And so Paul says, you have to curtail that because the church is meant to foster righteousness. So that's one problem. Here's another problem. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. People were letting the church foot the bill for their family members. That's not right. That's not good. That is not honoring their father and their mother. And so Paul tells them, They need to put the religion into practice. And then he says this in verse 8. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Boy, is that strong language. That's how wicked Paul thinks this is. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because earlier in the chapter, he says that Timothy should regard everyone in the church as family. So, Couldn't you argue, well, why shouldn't the church take care of my family? Because after all, 
Aren't we all family? But that is to undermine the analogy. We are meant to be family as Christians in the way that we love and care for one another. So if you're not loving or caring for your own family, then you're making a mockery of all of it. And you're destroying the analogy. One of the things that you clearly see in life is that people who've been harmed by their family, especially by their fathers, have a hard time coming to God. He calls himself Father. And the family is meant to be an expression of who he is. That's the language that he uses. The father loves the son. The son loves the father. The husband loves his bride. We are meant to model that. We are meant to display that. And when we don't, that is an affront. We are harming the deepest words that we have to describe God. And my my parents are here today for my son Harper's baptism. So yes, if it comes to this... um, This sermon does mean that they can move in with me. But my brother is a surgeon, so don't you guys think it just makes more sense for them to move in with a medical professional? Of course, my in-laws are also here. But what's happening in Ephesus here is wrong. It's wrong. So Paul says you have to curtail that because the church is meant to foster righteousness. So we need to encourage people to honor their father and their mother and to put their religion into practice because that pleases God. So that's another problem they were having. But they're also having problems with young widows. It says this, As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. So this would be like nuns. Nuns take solemn vows of poverty and chastity and obedience, and they make pledges. And they serve the church, and the church takes care of them. And you can see how this would come about, right? These are young women. They're probably going to live a long time. Can we really have these people taking the resources of the church for decades? That might be hard to do. So how about this? How about they work and serve the church in exchange? That's a win-win. You can see how this would come about. But these women, they're breaking their vows as soon as they find a man. And to make matters worse, they're also not really serving. That's what Paul says in verse 13. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. They're idle. They're not serving their church. They're taking their church's resources, and they're not serving. They're loafing around, and they're being busybodies and gossips. And that's not right. It shouldn't look like that. A widow who serves the church should look like this. She should be well-known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. So Paul puts an age restriction on this practice because the young widows were not fostering righteousness. He curtails that because the church is meant to foster righteousness. And so he encourages them, don't make vows that you're going to break. Just get married. 
Verse 14, So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Instead of idleness, he points them to fruitful labor, to work. We're meant to work. God gives us work, and we're meant to honor God in our work. And there's different kinds of work. You don't need to be a nun to be righteous. But righteousness is what we're after. And then lastly, Paul says this. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Don't be a burden to the church. You know, in this country, we have a very generous social safety net And the intention is often good. We want to help people. We want to care for people. But just like with this widow program, it can be well-intentioned, but it can produce unrighteousness. We see plenty of evidence of that. There's fraud. There's abuse. And it can so easily lead to a sense of entitlement. I have a right to this money. I have a right to this resource, a human right. I'm entitled to it. It's very easy to slip into that to entitlement where there's no gratitude or humility or even a second thought of maybe I'm being a burden. I think we understand that politically. I think we understand that economically. But I don't think we tend to think about this spiritually. But Christianity is not to be lived out in isolation. This is not just a personal faith journey. Your walk and your life affects your church. Are we burdens? Are we burdens? We understand this politically. We understand this economically. Do we understand it spiritually? You know, people will say to me, we're praying for you. That's so good to hear. But am I praying for others? You know, I I love to hear the insights uh, from the word of God. It's so edifying. But am I in the word? I love our ministries here and and things that we do, but am I serving anywhere at all? I love our worship. It's so rejuvenating to the soul. I especially love to hear the voices of the congregation belting it out. Oh, but no way are you going to hear mine. There are plenty of Christians that approach churches nothing but consumers and many more who are stuck on spiritual welfare. We're only surviving on the spiritual depths of others. And they are a burden. Only they're not doing it to a faceless bureaucracy. They're doing it to family. That's how we're supposed to think of one another, right? Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. We are to treat one another as family, and so we serve and care for each other. Yes, out of honor. Yes, out of duty, out of responsibility, but foremost, out of love. Remember that verse in Thessalonians? I urge you, brothers and sisters, to love each other more and more. That needs to be foremost. Because you know, love will keep us from being a burden. I don't want to be a burden to those I love. But it will also keep us from a false self-sufficiency. You know, Paul keeps emphasizing this line so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. People do need help. People do need help. 
But we can be so concerned about being a burden that we never accept it or seek it. I don't want to ask for prayer. It's embarrassing. I don't want to ask for help. That makes me feel too vulnerable. I don't want to be a burden. But so often what's driving that isn't humility, but pride. It's really no different than a sense of entitlement, right? I deserve this. That's pride and hubris. I don't want to ask for help. I don't want to look weak. I don't want to appear vulnerable. Think of how that would look. That's pride and hubris. I understand that mindset, believe me, but, but isn't it so antithetical to Christianity? Because we claim Christ as our Savior, as our Deliverer. I was completely lost. I was impoverished. I was destitute. I was in desperate need. I was totally incapable. And so were all of you. So why then should there be any pride or boasting? No, there should be only love for the one who saved us all in our need and made us all family. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.